You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. I'm Dave Bittner. The CyberWire was a media partner for the Hack the Port conference held in Fort Lauderdale, Florida in March 2022. Over the course of the week-long event, we enjoyed a variety of speakers, educational and training sessions, academic and professional villages with a number of competitive challenges and boot camps, and a VIP awards dinner honoring excellence in cybersecurity. The event was produced by Dreamport and Missy and inspired by U.S. Cyber Command. The highlight for me was a session I moderated featuring Roya Gordon, security research evangelist at Nozomi Networks, and Christian Lees, CTO at ReSecurity. As you'll hear, Roya Gordon has deep domain expertise when it comes to OT, ICS, and IoT security, and it was a treat for me and Christian to witness her takes on a variety of topics firsthand. Thank you very much. My name is Dave Bittner, and I am the host of the CyberWire podcast. Thank you all for joining us here today. And uh, to all of our friends who are out there online, welcome as well. Uh, We're going to have a really interesting conversation today. I'm excited to have our two guests here uh, with us. So before we dig into our topics, why don't we begin just with some brief introductions. Uh, I know some of you were here for Christian's presentation earlier today, but uh, for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to ask Christian and Roya to both introduce themselves. Roya, why don't I start with you? Can you give us just a little brief uh, bit on your background and uh, what you do professionally today? 
Yes, of course. Ooh, I like how my voice sounds. <laughs> um, so yes, my name is Roya Gordon. I work for Nozomi Networks. I just started about a month ago, so I'm a brand new Nozomi, or super excited about it. Um, I'm a security research evangelist, so I work with a lot of our technical folks, and I kind of help broadcast all the work that they're doing to kind of help um, secure critical infrastructure and OT. Um, I have a history in you know, consulting doing OT. I worked at a national lab doing OT. I did intelligence in the military. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to be here in my role and everything's like full circle. So yeah, happy to be here. And uh, Christian Reese from, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the company, uh, Reese Security. Yeah. <laughs> Apologies. No, it's easy to Apologies. <laughs> so many security <laughs> names. Uh, welcome, and please uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, my name is Christian Lees. I'm the CTO of Reese Security, and it's a Los Angeles based firm. Uh, and we primarily focus on uh, threat intelligence harvesting uh, for major brands. So, all right. Have fun. Well, let's dig in. Um, Roya, you mentioned in your introduction um, that your background, you've done many things in your background. And I want to start there. When we're talking about um, OT, um, I'm curious what your insights are on the approach that different organizations, different types of organizations take to that. So when we talk about the military, when we talk about government, when we talk about private networks, can you give us some, of I, some ideas of how each of those has to come at this from a unique perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, being in the military, doing government contracting, so essentially doing government work, working for the government, being in consulting and then now at a tech company, I've noticed that there's been so many different approaches to this thing. So when I was in the Navy, I did intelligence, but there was no cyber element to the Navy at the time. So this was um, from 2005 to 2011. So there was no cyber element. So I just did regular threat intelligence, you know, foreign threats, terrorism, and stuff like that. Now, of course, I still have contacts in the Navy, and they're kind of starting with the basics of like asset discovery, you know. Um, but you know, they're moving forward um, when it comes to cybersecurity for sure. When I got out and I started um, at uh, Idaho National Laboratory, you know. Pretty much government, DOE, I was in a lot of DOE projects, and it was straightforward. There was no wooing, there was no selling, there was no trying to convince. It was more so, we're gonna come in and, and help you all and tell you what you need to do and kind of incentivize these companies. Um, so it was, it was pretty straightforward. When I got to consulting, right, I worked at Accenture, but any consulting firm, whether it's Deloitte or Slalom, they're run essentially the same. It was a lot about the relationship building. The, you know, you have to get industry to trust you and, you know, leveraging partners for sure, but it was all about the relationship with the CISO, with C-suite, um, enabling uh, board members, helping them to understand to cut funding. So it was cyber, but then there was like the business aspect of it. Like you're undergoing an M&A and what, what are the implications from a cyber perspective? So um, that's how I kind of got out of my cyber bubble and I started looking at business and I, I began bridging that gap between technical and and just kind of um, what the company is doing as a whole from a business standpoint. And now being in tech, you know, I, I kind of feel like a little bit of a superhero. <laughs> you know, like we're solving real problems with the technology that, you know, the consulting firms are leveraging, um, partnering with government. And it's like there is no security if there's no one developing the technology. So um, I don't know if that's your experience, but that's kind of been my very unique experience across all of these different organizations. Christian? Yeah. Uh, and just out of curiosity for the listeners, uh, would you define OT for everyone? Because that's a lot of overtime. 
Yeah. <laughs> that you had. Yeah, operational technology. So, you know, critical infrastructure, pipelines, oil and gas. Um, they run on a separate network that's not the IT, um, where it's moving physical systems to open and close things. So that's what we um, refer to as, as operational technology, or OT for short. So not overtime. Not overtime. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I'd just be curious, uh, in, in your uh, transition into, sounds like a lot of security, uh, et cetera, right? Yeah. Um, what are the uh, friction points uh, that you run into? I, I know I myself is, you know, for example, like security theater, single pane of gas, a uh, glass, not gas, uh, very difficult to overcome some of these, right? And, and internally talking about risk and, and the appetite for risk or using the right words of risk. I'd just yeah. be curious if you run into that. Yeah, um, I guess some of the pain points I've had was, you know, you, you think it's gonna be obvious that, you know, hey, we need to invest in security, um, but there's a lot more convincing, right? So obviously we know the industry is like reactionary, so you have to have a Ukraine power grids shutting off or colonial pipeline happening for people to take it seriously. And even then, there's still kind of the, the extra convincing that, hey, you need this or this is gonna happen. And I still see that being a struggle and a pain point. I mean, obviously, you know, um, the industry is doing a better job of highlighting, you know, through these conferences, but I, I see that, at, you know, just companies, you just gotta do a little bit more convincing. You do, yeah, Always absolutely. Yeah. And, and going to a C-suite that would gladly talk to you for eight hours about, you know, profit forecasting, and you got about 30 seconds to say, well, according to the CVE, you know, you got a buffer, beep, you're done, right? Yeah. And you're, you're a cost center. Uh, yeah. And uh, a lot of times you, you manage up and, and, and convince them that it's the best idea they ever had. Um, I think that's all they want. They want you to tell them what they should do. You know, I used to go into meetings and it would kind of be like the chicken before the egg thing. Like, you know, what are you looking for from a cyber perspective? And they're like, I don't know, why don't you tell me? And, you know, we're going back and forth. And then it's like, you know what? We're the experts, they're looking to us like we're the experts. We're just gonna come in with solutions and then it's a good starting point for them to provide their input, but it's never industry really driving it. They don't know what they need as far as security. You know, the experts do. True, I agree, yeah. To what degree do you find yourself serving as that, that translation layer for a board? You know, in other words, it's, it strikes me that they, <laughs> they speak in terms of risk, which is different from the technical aspects that a lot of, you know, the, the, certainly the IT people are used to, yeah. their discourse circles around that. So are you, do, do you end up being the, the, you know, the Rosetta Stone between those two worlds? <laughs> I actually, so my, my title is an evangelist, but I'm like, if there was another title, it would be translator for sure. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, so working you know, with technical teams, doing threat assessments, you know, they're on the dark web, um, you know, presenting that and then just bringing it in front of you know, a CISO that has to go to the board to justify why they need more funding when there's all these other things they're trying to invest funding in, it, it just doesn't translate. So I kind of take that and then I look at, you know, this is what the, you know, there's an acquisition going on. So maybe they don't wanna hear about building a threat intel program. Let's do cybersecurity around this M&A. Let's figure out how secure that acquisition will be, assets that they're gonna acquire, access vectors that they're not considering. So I kind of bridge that gap 
gap to kind of help them look at, um, apply cybersecurity to like the broader aspects of their business. And it is a translation. So when I go on LinkedIn and I see a lot of evangelist jobs pop up, <laughs> it, it, my mom, she hates the fact that I'm an evangelist. Like she grew up in the church and she's just like, there's no way I'm going to call you an evangelist. <laughs> right, right. But it makes sense. There needs to be people to bridge that gap and to do this translation, yeah. you know? I believe so, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting that, you know, in the modern day today, if a company is going under an M&A, right? Well, hold on. You know what you got to do. Right? Yeah. You, uh, what, former, you know, Accenture, right? They conduct 60, 90 day, you know, cyber study. Is anyone dwelling? Are there any threat actors yep. within here? And I don't know. I don't think it was like that five, 10 years ago. Yeah, I don't think Maybe. anybody was thinking about cyber implications for M&A. Mm. Yeah, like, mm -hmm. yeah, so it, it's, but it's good, and, and that's kind of why I feel like a, a strategy is to, to, you know, not stay, everyone, you know, we're in our cybersecurity bubble. Even conferences, you know, you just kind of see the same people, and I'm like, no, I want to go out to where people aren't thinking about security. Mm -hmm. You know, the conferences that are industry conferences, that's not a cybersecurity industry conference, and then be there talking to them and changing their minds about how they're applying cybersecurity. Getting back to the differences between you know, military, government, and private sector, um, where do you, where, what are those differences to you? Are, 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 is one more nimble than the other? Is one less resistant to um, being, does one need more convincing that, that they need to focus on this? Are there budgetary differences, the cadence of their budgets? How, you know, operational differences, can you contrast those between those types of organizations? Yeah, I can, I can talk to it for a little bit because I haven't really been involved in budgeting in all of them, you sure. know, but obviously government, we know that they're just kind of slow to move, so budgeting can hold up some things. But I would say I, I see similar pain points in each, you know. I see hmm. there, and I don't want to give away my talk on Thursday, but, you know, um, from a talent perspective, you know, they're just not being enough people. Um, you still have to do some convincing, maybe on the government side not so much, but definitely in private and consulting or tech, um, you know, so, so yeah, I would kind of see that there's similarities, but there's also differences, too, when, when dealing with customers, uh, you know, um, being a part of those different organizations. Can we, can we dig some into um, things like research and demos in OT security, you know, the place that that plays uh, when it comes to the folks doing OT? Um, first of all, for folks who might not be familiar with that, can you give us a little bit of insight as to you know, where that sits in the day-to-day -day operations of the folks who are keeping the OT side of the house running? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> Just like, no, you had, like, okay. you're the OT master. I love it. <laughs> so, um, so I've been very involved in you know, a lot of uh, demos, mostly in the resources space. You know, that's the background I came from. And it ended up branching out into broader critical infrastructure. So it wasn't just oil and gas and utilities. It was like, hey, pharmaceutical manufacturing, auto industry, um, and things of that, medical devices and things of that nature. So um, when you know, talking about demos and research, I think it just kind of glues everything together. It's one thing to talk to a client about, hey, this is the bad that could happen, but then when you show them, I kind of feel like it's less convincing you have to do because they, they see it. But the other side to it, which is, you know, I work with research teams to do this, is to build that additional context to drive the message home. So instead of saying like, hey, this is what an actor can do, it's like, okay, well, 
how, why, the intent of these actors, and then what are the solutions? There's times that I've um, given threat assessments to major oil and gas companies, and if you don't leave them with action items, it's like you, you probably shouldn't have just said anything to them at all. Because they're gonna look at it as like, this is great information, but you're not telling me what to do about it, so it may not be that big of a deal. So I do think demos and research is um, beneficial in helping us get ahead of the threat, because obviously you're, before you're exploited, you know what the vulnerabilities are, you know what the weak points are, but you also have to pro provide that context on the front end and then at the end tie it together with some action items. And I see that kind of missing in some demos, so I'm hoping that as an industry we can kind of foster that. Is it a struggle sometimes to get budgeting for, for demos, for research, for those sorts of things? As, you know, people are just trying to keep things running on, on the OT side, and of course no one ever has enough time or money. Um, is, to what degree uh, do, you, is the, do you have to convince folks that that's a, a worthwhile investment? You know what, so when I was preparing my presentation for Thursday, I um, looked at some statistics, right? Statistics are key. And budgeting really isn't an issue when it comes to OT anymore. So Nozomi and Sands did a recent study and they were like, hey, you know, what are the issues? And you know, they surveyed X amount of professionals. Like, what are the issues when it comes to OT security? And a lot of them said personnel. So when you ask people, the issue with OT security is lack of personnel. That means obviously there's a direct correlation. But then the other statistics showed that there's an increase in budgeting. So there's um, companies want to hire more people and they want to do things in OT. So and I think that's changed and we're still thinking, you know, there's no budget, but there is increased budget. Um, I mean, there might be a little tug of war between IT and OT budgeting, but I think we are starting to see. Um, increased budget for that to where it's not an issue. It's just making sure that we're sending the right message, you know, and hiring the right people. I, I could not agree with you more. I'm, I'm non-military, right? So I, I, I probably don't have all the similar buzzwords, but I, I do see similarities, right? Uh, I mean, hiring seasoned veteran security people, security engineers, right, uh, that have the ability, in my mind, there are similarities in, in the private industry where you know, data flows and, and you know, just building that out. Um, one of the problems that I see is the lack of ability to make precise, prioritized intelligence requests, right? Um, knowing something about that dark world, world you know, uh, even having the ability to go, these are the threat actors that are most likely to hit me Yep, because they specialize in this, right? Um, and having the ability to understand your entire environment, the demarcation, what's your endpoint? What's your API? And are you able to do these correlations? I feel like sometimes organizations are still really struggling to kind of see the trees through the forest, mm. unfortunately, which has, in my opinion, been there a long time. Now, I know there's a lot of organizations that do that really well, but <clears throat> on my side, just seeing the lack of ability to be able to prioritize intelligence requests from externally or the untrust side is, is, has been a problem. I want to piggyback on that. So um, during my time at consulting, you know, there was a lot of, um, you know, they, they don't know what their intel requirements are. So as an, you know, cyber threat intelligence, you know, we had intel collection requirements, which is so funny because when I did intelligence in the Navy, when there was no cyber element, that's what drove intelligence. It was ICRs, intel collection requirements. So what are you looking for? What industries? Who? And then having the feedback loop, talking to companies to make sure you're not collecting on a whole bunch of things that they don't care about, right? Um, but the step further is companies need to have their own intel collection requirements. So from a CTI perspective, we know what we're collecting on, but as a company, 
like what regions are you interested in based on where your assets are? So um, we were kind of helping them think through that, but you're right, like they just have no clue and they just think, they just want to get someone in to do cyber for them. And we're just like, it's a process. It's a, it's a deeper process than they think. It's a collaboration, right? You yeah. Know, uh, in order to go into these dark places, something I see a lot, right? Uh, we, we may send out an alert, right? Like, hey, did you see this on this forum? Most people in the enterprise, they do not even have the ability to go onto the dark web, right? You know, and uh, so they're like, what do I do with this? And, yeah. Um, but I love the example of OCR driving the pivot collection. Yeah. That's fantastic, right? And a lot of times organizations, they just don't even, they're not sure, what is it that you're protecting? Yeah. Oh, cardholder data. Okay. All right. Well, then what's your infrastructure? And, and it's, I like, the, I also like your, your, the, the example of a roadmap, right? You're yeah. absolutely right. If, if you can't milestone it and roadmap it for these people, it's hard. Yeah. It's a lot of hand-holding. <laughs> yeah. But I'm here to hold hands, so. <laughs> Can we touch on, on the, the threat intelligence element, though? Because um, you, know, you don't know what you don't know. And it seems to me like a lot of organizations, when they're engaging with a threat intelligence organization or, or figuring out how to ingest that information into their process, um, sometimes there are surprises, right? Like they didn't know that such so-and-so were talking about them, or as you say, it could be a part of the world they've never even thought about before. I mean, to what degree uh, do you think that the threat intelligence element is important, is, is critical to the operations on, on the OT side? OT. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny because I think things are um, obvious, but then I have to remember the audience and I have to remember that a lot of people don't realize it. So if there's... Um, Geopolitical strategic intelligence or, you know, what incites cyber threat activity. Obviously, we're seeing it with what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. But even prior to that, any kind of regional tension or any kind of political instability um, can incite cyber threat activity and dealing with resources, specifically mining, chemicals, oil and gas. Um, they're operating in so many parts of the world. So they don't think like, hey, I probably need to know, um, you know, geopolitical news. They're thinking it's a waste of time. Just tell me the cyber stuff. But I'm like, yeah, if there's like an election coming up or if, you know, we did a sanction or, you know, if they're kind of dealing with this from a regional standpoint, there's instability, then your facilities might get caught in the crossfires, you know? So, um, it's helping them think through that because obviously cyber threat intelligence is not just like indicators of compromise. It's the whole context. It's what's going on on the dark web. So um, yeah, so that's kind of been something that I've been trying to help them understand. Now, when it comes to attribution, I have mixed feelings because we know that threat actors, they steal other threat actors' tools. And you're thinking, oh, it's Russia, and it's not. Um, and then a lot of Nation states, they, in, they use um, threat groups that are independent. So you kind of don't know that, you know, uh, Russia, China, Iran, they're tied to that threat group. So there's a lot of, um, if you waste a lot of energy trying to figure out who, then you could miss, you know, actually trying to secure your networks and we'll figure out the who later, you know. Attribution obviously is important because there could be different motives, whether it's cyber espionage, you'd want to know, okay, why is China behind this? But um, for the most part, you don't want to spend too much time, secure right away, and then kind of dig into the weeds of who is targeting, targeting you and why. I like that, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> my experience is, uh, Many times when industries come in, they just want to fast forward to the ending credits, right? <laughs> like, roll the credits, we're good, done. And they, that's exactly right. First question, who? Who's doing it? 
like, okay, everyone, back up, right, right? Like, let's start on page one, <laughs> chapter one, right? Uh, yeah. Let's get to know about your environment, right? Like, where, you know, tell me about it, right? We need to know something about it, right? Um, you know, why would I be sending you alerts if you're a pure Linux shop about RDP, you know? And, and why would I correlate any of these threat actors that pivot off of that, um, you know? I like that approach, is learning something about your environment, right? Like, let's start with what's your risk? What are your exposures? Uh, what's the most likely methodology? Uh, what is it you're protecting? Yeah. And from that, you build upon pivoting in your collections or what's most likely. Yeah. Um, Attribution is just hard. Um, because even with what happened with Colonial Pipeline, how everyone just kind of jumped to the conclusion like the Russians, and yeah, there has been a history of that, a little bit of probing into our, our grid, and, but um, because you know, I know the dark web, you know the dark web, we know that there's that whole ecosystem, so whoever's developing the ransomware, they're not necessarily the ones launching the attack. They're selling it to the bad people, Whoa. and then you can you know, walk in, and I always say it could be a very inexperienced person who knows nothing about cyber, and you're like, oh, let me get those credentials there. Like you were saying, let me get network access and let me get this ransomware, and now you're a sophisticated threat actor by your capabilities. So, um, um, attribution is just hard, and you know, it came out later on once everyone dissected all that who it was, because Russian based and Russian speaking is different from a nation state threat actor that's you know doing it on the behalf of the Russian government. So, it takes time to explain that, but let's figure out what the issue is and secure it first, and then let's do the background later. You know, agree, right? I Skip attribution, <laughs> right? Because like most of these threat actors tend to pivot off of the CVE within three months. Yeah. Right? And okay, so you're focusing on who? No, you should be focusing on now, right? Yeah. Like uh, get patching, get backporting. Yeah. There are, I, I've seen some organizations, some security organizations uh, say that they don't believe attribution matters. Completely, uh, you know, as a policy, dismiss it. Is that a bit too far in yeah. your mind? I would say, because you don't want to just not care about who's doing it, you right. know? Because I, I know, you know, um, depending on, I guess, what, whatever companies have different service offerings, sometimes you could just get that API and you just get the data and that's it. You don't care about the details. You just want to know, I need to block this and that's all I care about. But then you're still missing a good chunk of what Threat Intel is. So I think it has to be a good balance. And, you know, again, just a little prioritization. It's good to have that, but it's also good to kind of know if you're being targeted and why. So, like, uh, going back to M&As, um, you might want to know, like, if you're doing a major M&A um, in a certain market, if there's another country that's interested in that, you know, it, sometimes it kind of helps give you a little bit more context. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that it's to be depended on. It's just like you can't do one without the other. I think both is important to create the bigger picture. Yeah. I agree, yeah. I mean, attribution helps paint a better story. Yeah. And, and further pushes the cause, right? Might be the convincing factor that sometimes they're like, whoa, we gotta fix this, right? I would just say, if we could replace the word who as our first step with yeah. if, you know, um, hmm. and, and build, and who could come potentially later, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know it's someone bad. <laughs> right. So, it's, ne it's never Start good. There. <laughs> <laughs> and narrow it down over time, right? Yeah. yeah. Can we touch on um, supply chain issues? As we sit here today, we have this breaking, developing story that um, uh, it's, it's speculated that um, Okta uh, may have ha been um, 
compromised, uh, and certainly they have a lot of uh, big-name clients around the world. And I think the past year or so uh, has certainly shown a bright light on this whole notion of supply chain security. Um, I'm curious on your insights on to uh, specifically how that applies to this space. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think it's, a, you know, what's really being targeted is that trusted relationship because, you know, you know that if there's like an update or if there's this technology from your vendor, you're automatically going to trust it. Um, you think that they're doing due diligence in making sure it's secure, but no one's ever asked that. And I think it's a big problem, and obviously we've seen it within the past year um, and how it can you know, kind of affect organizations. However, I think another part of the supply chain compromise that we need to think about is hardware supply chain compromise. And I don't wanna wait until something happens like um, a Log4j or solar winds or all of that for it to kind of now be the thing that we focus on. So I know in the Zomi's um, Threat Intel report, we do it every quarter or every um, half a year, you know, we get into the details of that and then, you know, starting to do research around it. So if it's a USB, if it's a mouse, like what are the different components that could be compromised? And then if it's connected to, you know, because everyone's big into air gap, right? So they're like, I have this USB and it's air gap, but not if it's preloaded with malware, <laughs> which that was a study. <laughs> And it showed that there's also even Stuxnet variants, like in a USB. So I think that as everyone kind of shifts to that concept to make it, to I guess have a more secure environment, it's like we need to start digging into um, hardware supply chain compromise and the cyber implications that that could have. But yeah, absolutely. I think supply chain is a huge issue right now. And um, I'm actually happy that it's uh, the focus. I know a couple years ago before all of this happened, I, um, we discovered on the dark web that you know, there was a small third-party supplier uh, whose network access was for sale. And you know, then we saw that it was sold. So that small um, supplier obviously wasn't the main target. It's, you know, threat actors are gonna target like the smaller companies that are less secure so they can get to their main target. So we're able to notify, you know, a global oil and gas company of this and they're able to take action and, and all of that. But again, um, supply chain is being highly targeted. So I'm happy that we're, there's a lot of focus around it now. Agree, and I, I mean, I, it, history always tends to repeat itself, right? Like way back when, getting your time back, you know, time machine and, you know, we saw, uh, the compromise of a HVAC lead to Target. And, um, but I guess one thing, and again, allegedly, uh, this incident we've learned of today, it, I find interest in the fact that it's, uh, you know, if it is the Lapis Group, like, again, this is an organization that's moved out of traditional forum and they announce it via Telegram, right? And a, a very evasive um, and targeting. Infrastructure. I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a lot of threat actors that are like, you know, you don't hear from them for a little bit, they're laying low, and then all of a sudden there's a new group that pops back up, and I'm like, I think they just did a name change. Mm. Like, they're not fooling anybody. You <laughs> know? Branding? Yeah. Right. Under new management. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, so we think that there's all of these, you know, groups, and I, I do think that there are, but then we have to think a lot of times they're just popping up and changing their name and making it seem like they're different when they're not. So That would require attribution, though. Ah, yeah. <laughs> can, can we dig a little deeper into the hardware side of things? I mean, what, when, when 
when you're thinking of hardware in the supply chain and the vulnerabilities, can you give what is what's the the spectrum of the types of devices we're talking about hardware-wise? Well, well, definitely chips. Mm-hmm. You know, so something like that. Like if I purchase a keyboard, I'm not I'm trusting the keyboard, right? Um, and then whoever's putting it together, they have like so many different vendors, different people making all the different pieces. So within whoever's building the keyboard, no one's checking to see like, is this chip legit? Is it compromised? So it's like a long line of no one double checking. And then when it gets to like an oil and gas company, then all of a sudden they're the ones hit really, really hard by it. So, you know, we're talking about the different components that make up the hardware. And it comes from so many different places all over the world. Where do they come no from? one keeps track of it. And there is something called, you know, know, the SBOM, the Software Bill of Materials, mm-hmm. um, but then there's even like inconsistencies with that. It's a good start to know where the many devices in this device are, but again, I think it's going to take some time for us to really get a good strategy around understanding the hardware um, supply chain. Right, yeah, what's the guarantee of this Huawei ARM chipset and built in some other country? And yeah. I agree. To what degree are you finding organizations are having uh, a struggle or, or just pondering how deep, how far down the chain to go? You know, because um, well, I have suppliers, they have suppliers, they have suppliers. You say you can get down to the component level, um, but there's a lot of layers there. Yeah. And so who do you trust? How do you verify, um, you know, what is that chain of custody of complex devices? Valid question. I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to say I know, but I have something to say in regards to what you just said. Um, So I think it makes sense for everybody to have like some kind of third party agreement that includes security, right? So there are times on the dark web, we've seen companies um, that, you know, have um, satellites and, you know, geospatial data from all these different companies, and then they get breached and their data is, you know, uploaded on the name and shame sites. And it's just like, wait a minute, that's one of our clients. They're not breached, but their data is compromised through a third-party breach. However, the third-party um, company isn't going to notify all of their customers or all of their clients. You know, So that could be a start to kind of say, hey, maybe there needs to be an agreement in place. So if you're the victim of a ransomware attack, you have to tell me because you have my data and my sensitive information. And then from there, I just think if everyone just kind of does that down the chain, then that could hopefully help foster a, a more secure supply chain. But that's, you know, a laborious thing to do. I'm sure we can figure out how to automate that in the future. But, I, you know, I just think that companies, larger organizations need to protect themselves and their data, not just what's housed on their servers or even cloud service providers, but all of those third parties that have sensitive data. And, and the stuff that was leaked, it was like um, geophysical stuff and drilling like areas and coordinates and stuff. Like you don't want this getting in the hands of, you know, the wrong people. I mean, how about Samsung? Like... Recently, all the handsets, you know, compromised by, again, Lapis, you know, it's... Yeah. Retooling that is years. Yeah. Mm. And the pivot on that, I would think, right? Like, mm. how many... How long did it take to make the Samsung Galaxy? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it's a tough... It's a, you ask a tough question, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah. I also think about, you know, it's my understanding, like, particularly on the OT side of the house, that you have components that could that could be in a system for decades. Mm. And so if something, if there's a problem discovered down the line, it's not like these things get swapped out and updated regularly, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, that's the problem that we face, and here we are at a cybersecurity <laughs> conference to talk about it and to help, you know, make things better. SCADA controls <laughs> from the 50s, you know, yeah. in existence today, sure. Before, yeah. we, before we wrap up, I want to make sure we touch on um, sort of the cultural side of things, you know, the relationship between the IT side of the house and the OT side of the house. Do we sense that... Um, there's more uh, hand-holding, you know, we're getting together and we're singing We Are the World together so that um, the, there's an understanding that this needs to happen and, and we're moving in that direction? Could, could I ask, in, in the private world, is it fair to say the concept of IT and DevOps might be a similar hmm. contrast there? Because I, I, I was just thinking, like, what's OT and IT, is there a big you know, finger yeah. pointing at one another? Yeah, I, I, I tend to see that. Um, so obviously there's not a lot of skilled people in general that understand OT. And then you try to pull from IT because you're like, at least they know technology, but then there's still kind of that learning curve. So it becomes, you know, difficult for people in OT to have the people that understand what needs to be done. So everyone understands the IT space, security, what needs to be done. It's easier for them to kind of fight for that funding. Um, so yeah, there is a little bit of tug of war. There is a little bit of, you know, okay, well now if I'm gonna shift to OT, then screw cyber hygiene. <laughs> and then it's just like, well, that's not what you do either. It's like, it's not an either or type of thing. It does have to be like a kumbaya moment between both sides. Um, so what I do like though, um, is that now there's technologies that allow you to get that same visibility into your OT environments like the IT. Mm. So shameless plug here, that's what Nozomi Networks does. <laughs> well <laughs> so you're, done. I'm just saying, I mean, it ties yeah. into the message and you're able to kind of see not just the components, not just what's uh, normal behavior and get alerted on what's anomalous behavior. You get to see packets. Like before there was never that kind of visibility into OT and now that you have that and it can all kind of be fed into this SIM so when you're in a SOC, you can see everything. I'm like, that's cohesion. We don't have to fight. Someone just needs to understand what this OT stuff means, but it can all be done together. Real quick uh, before we wrap up, can you give us a, a little uh, teaser, a little preview of the presentation you're giving later in the week? Absolutely. I'm so passionate about the topic. So I talk about bridging the gap between universities and the OT industry um, because I didn't come into this field in a traditional type of way. Um, yeah, I had an Intel background. I was on my way to the NSA. I, I thought I was just going to be in the Intel community. And then I ended up, you know, getting a job, uh, working at the national labs, learning OT security hands-on. And now I've just kind of been head first, feet first, wherever, into this field. And it's been amazing. So I just, I like to talk about my journey and how to kind of help people like me that want to get into this field and there's really no avenue for it, you know? So mm -hmm. it's, on, it's on Thursday at 2.30 um, p.m. Um, so hopefully you all will still be there because there's just so many of you out there just so interested in what we have to say right now. Everyone must go. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, Roya Gordon from Nozomi Networks, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And of course, Christian Lees from ReSecurity. Thank you for being on our panel today. Thanks to all of you thank for you. being here. Yeah. We appreciate it. Thank you. That was awesome. Oh, <laughs> Our thanks to Dreamport and Missy for including the CyberWire in the Maritime and Control Systems Cybersecurity Con, Hack the Port 22. You can learn more about the event at hacktheport.tech. Thanks to senior producer Jennifer Iben for coordinating the session. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.
The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.